healthy journey into theological understanding will be marked by the way it impacts not only our thinking, but also our action in the world. But it's equally true that our everyday engagement with the kingdom of God in real and practical ways can then launch us further into our theological inquiry and understanding. In this episode, I talk with Nigel Langford, whose journey towards adoption with his wife Nikki has led him into a deeper and richer grasp of theologies of waiting, suffering, and fulfillment, and ultimately, of the goodness of the gospel. Welcome to Theodisc. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and I'd love if you would subscribe to the podcast and share episodes with your friends and family. We want to see people from all walks of life engaging in deep, yet accessible theology for the growth of their faith and the building up of the whole body of Christ. Nigel Langford is a director of Domestic Mission for Bible Society and has a long history in church planting and leadership. He's also the chair of trustees for WTC, has achieved his graduate diploma, and is now nearing the end of his MA. In this conversation, Nigel was deeply honest about the amazing journey God has led his family on, and I do hope it will speak hope and encouragement to you as you listen. All right, Nigel Langford, delighted to have you on the Theodisc podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Kenny. How are you? I'm doing all right. We are having this conversation fairly early in our workday. Yeah, we are. I look like it's, I've already reached the end of the workday, but you are looking pretty dapper this morning. <laughs> well, sometimes you just have to, don't you? Um, often I freeze my screen out because uh, I wish I could freeze just around to my head because... Uh, I don't always come out looking particularly dapper, according to my family members. So. Well, this is going to be a, a really interesting conversation today because we're going to be talking about adoption and theological understanding of that. What's interesting is that you actually have some experience. Quite often we talk about how our theology leads us into acting in the world. Yeah. You perhaps have come from this where your action or things that God has been doing in you has led you into a deeper theological understanding. Yeah. Um, so we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do that, your first time guest. Mm. So you must answer the three questions that every first time guest must <laughs> go through when they come onto Theodisc. So this is just for our listeners to get to know you just a little bit. Yeah, We want to talk about things that are constants in your life, things that you return to. Yeah, Three categories are a book, a food, and a location or a place. Right. So let's go with the first one. What's a book that you return to? Mm, um, probably The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. Um, I read that book and it totally transformed how I read the Old Testament. Um, how I viewed it. And um, so I go back to it regularly uh, because she talks a lot about um, something that's not in place in my life, a tidy cupboard uh, with things hanging neatly on, um, you know, on different things in there. And she sort of coat hangers. And um, I just loved how she sort of um, built a context for how to understand the scriptures and, and work through the Old Testament, especially. Yeah. So I go back to that a lot. Yeah, taking all those um, disconnected stories or some, the way we sometimes think and organizing them in a way that we can understand. Yes. Standard reading. Yes. For anybody who studies at WTC, but an excellent book that anyone should should pick up. Very good. Um. Yes, excellent book. What about a food or a meal that you return to? Well, I'm pretty predictable when it comes to desserts. 
So I thought I, you talked about a constant, um, probably sticky toffee pudding oh. is definitely a constant for me. Sticky toffee pudding. Yeah. Yeah. Do you go with the ice cream, a little bit of custard? What do you? Oh, okay. Um, so I go, <laughs> <laughs> I go with cream and ice cream. Just like <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to get, if you're going to hit a thousand calories to it in style is my, is my sort of um, viewpoint. <laughs> I love it. That's great. I want to eat sticky toffee pudding with you sometime. Okay. And finally, a location or a place that you return to. So um, definitely for me, my heritage is uh, Wales and going down to the Gower Coast, uh, the Gower coastline, just past Swansea, uh, on the way up to further west, up to St. David's. Uh, it's just a beautiful part of the world. And going for walks along Langland Bay and Caswell Bay. Um, yeah, hopefully when there's not a massive storm and it's raining, but, uh, you know, when the sun shows up occasionally, it's just, it takes me back to my childhood. Yeah. I've got really happy memories there. Brilliant. Thank you, mm. Nigel. Now we know you. There you go. It's just a wee bit. I mean, someone likes sticky toffee pudding, they're all right with me. And, <laughs> and Welsh, you know, all that's good. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's kind of turn to what we want to talk about today. So um, we're really coming out of, as we said earlier, your 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 family's experience. You may want to just give us a little bit of background about mm. how adoption has become a part mm. of a part of your family. Yeah, yeah. So um, without like jumping too far into the story uh, at the beginning, um, adoption became uh, eventually the only sort of viable route for us to start a family in and it wasn't how we had originally imagined it but i'll come on to that later um and, and we just went through a process of uh, quite a grueling process of mm -hmm. um <clears throat> working with a certain social worker and having the life turned upside down and so that that was really interesting yeah. but the process led to us uh, adopting a beautiful little boy uh two days before the first lockdown in March 2020, we had to literally put him in the back of our car and drive up to London just before Boris Johnson uh, declared the first lockdown. And that's how we got to know him. Wow. 23 hours a day in the house. Wow. So it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that had been, you know, and we'll get further into the story as we, as we go through our conversation. Mm. But obviously that was a point after a long wait and a long journey that you guys have been on yeah yeah so one of the things that i often find uh interesting to process is how much of an instant world we live in uh you know we want to put something in the microwave and how long is it going to take that's the first thing you look at on the back isn't it take six minutes that's crazy you know if we go into a hotel or a coffee shop and we're not connected to the wi-fi and you know, 15, 20 seconds, we're up in arms. And we don't realize how much of an instant world we live in. Yep. And, uh, and quite often God works at his, at his own pace. Um, there's a different story that's, um, that's working. And, and sometimes in our culture, the two can jar together. But it all began, I think, sort of early on when my wife came down one morning to breakfast and said, Nige, I've had a dream about a blonde boy. 
And I wasn't quite sure where this was going initially because I thought, I've had a dream. I thought I was your only blonde boy. I mean, what is going on here? So I was looking over the, you know, I thought, is this confession time? What's actually happening here? And she said, no, don't be silly. She said, I've had, I had a dream about uh, a little blonde boy. He was sitting on my lap and he was laughing. And I'll, I can not ever forget the sensation of the love I felt and how complete I felt. And so we kind of took that as it's time to start a family. And uh, we embarked on 11 to 12 years of uh, infertility. So, you know, every month for 11 years, at a certain point, you, you know, your, your highs and your lows, you, you, you know, you go through it all. And sometimes the worst place to be infertile is the church because, you know, everybody's naming it and claiming it and, you know, saying it and bringing it forth and casting it out. And they, everybody means well, but, but often there's, there's human beings on the other side of it who are just wrestling with, with what's going on when your friends are on their second and third child and you haven't managed to even, uh, enable your first one, uh, to, to appear. So, um, we went through an, uh, yeah, 11, 12 year stretch of just, of infertility. And then just when we'd kind of given up all hope, really, Nikki fell pregnant. And we have a lot of banter in our relationship. So when she first told me, I didn't know whether it was just a really, really dark joke on a Saturday morning, you know, over breakfast. I said, but I realized that she was actually serious. And, you know, we, we sort of entered this period of jubilation only to, have to really deal with some serious, serious pain when our son didn't make it to the end of the pregnancy mm. and died. And, uh, that happened on our wedding anniversary. So we, we kind of felt completely and utterly lost. Um, you know, why would, why would we fall pregnant for this to happen? And why would that happen on our wedding anniversary? I think it, it plunged us into like a, a really challenging place that we weren't, we didn't feel prepared for. I think, you know, what we'll come on to later is uh, there was a sense of just feeling that we weren't prepared to walk through these things. We were always looking to to victory and to breakthrough and, you know, in, in sort of Pentecostal and charismatic circles, the ones that we grew up in, it was always you fix your eyes on that. You don't fix your eyes on the problem. And quite often what that does, it just leads you into a, a place of denial, um, where something's just building inside of you that's not particularly healthy. So we, we found ourselves at that moment in a really difficult place. And we were like associate pastors at a large church at that point. And I remember going to my church leader, um, and, and asking him not to, to preach, uh, anymore because I didn't know whether I believed what I was actually saying. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and they were very gracious. They, they re their response was, well, the fact you feel like that probably gives you the platform to speak with integrity, uh, into other people's lives. So yeah, that, that, that sums up sort of in a couple of minutes, an awful lot of activity, but it was, um, a super challenge for us really. I mean, obviously, we've already alluded to this idea that in charismatic evangelical circles, we were 
constantly talking about the power of God and yeah. God's ability to intervene. Yes. With your experience in that and that long waiting time and then to have mm. tragedy and disappointment, mm. how did you wrestle with what seemed to be the incongruity between those those two? It was It was really hard. It was really difficult. I mean, there were many times when we just felt we couldn't even talk about it. And, you know, being the, the, you know, being the man of faith, the, you know, you have these, like, you have these identities, don't you, wrapped up in ego, uh, quite often in church. You're know, the man of faith. You're the man with the answer for everyone else. You know, my wife, you're the woman of you know, prophetic this and leading this. And, and, and we find ourselves both kind of like in that moment where, uh, we don't have any answers. And so we went through a real long time of waiting mm-hmm. before we went, uh, into adoption because we just felt we couldn't do it with integrity. You know, we were reacting from a place of pain and that's just where we were. And so mm. we actually spent an awful lot of time, uh, which was hard for me as an extrovert, walking, being by ourselves and reflecting and, and really challenging each other because, you know, let's be honest about it. Our marriage really struggled through this period. And so, we just went down to the depths. I, I can remember just feeling like there's nothing left. And it was this constant everyday challenge of when I say submitting to Christ, it really wasn't that spectacular or holy. It was literally sometimes just a confession. Mm. Like, Lord, I don't know where you are. Mm. I really don't know where you are, but I trust you. And so I know we may talk about sort of like this whole theology of suffering more deeply shortly but i think i think sort of in that waiting period before adoption i i found myself even on my own as an extrovert which was really weird walking up and down sort of where my my wife's parents live in south end along the seafront and one day just heard this voice come back uh, because the heavens were really <laughs> quiet up to that moment mm. and i remember just wrestling with adoption and i said to the lord I don't want somebody else's child, which I suddenly realized when I came on how callous it sounded mm-hmm. and how selfish it sounded. But that's where we were at. And I said, I don't want to adopt. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, but you're adopted. And I was like, how cheeky. You know, I, my birth parents live in Wales. Thank you very much. You know, I'm not adopted. And, and then I heard this voice. I said, but I adopted you. And I froze. I literally froze on the spot and felt something um, within me just sort of shift. And it wasn't like massively quick or anything, but I, I felt like my heart was warm towards the adoption process. And then we embarked on that. But I think it just really, not to say forced is the wrong word, but it sort of created a space in my life where before that, everything seemed to go really well, mm. you know, and everything was, looking the way it should look but i tell you that well there was a period of time and then a couple of scriptures that spoke to me and it really helped form this not just the theology of waiting but an understanding and a theology of suffering because mm-hmm. i was never given a template to walk through because if if i had suffering in my life i was cursed right, right. if i was suffering there was something seriously wrong on my side right. but this whole experience kind of like took that apart like Holy Week for me suddenly became just a a massive revelation of like two high points of Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And then in the middle, 
complete carnage. Like, you know, the disciples feel abandoned. Jesus is off somewhere. Jesus is betrayed. Everybody scatters. Jesus is tortured, murdered, complete silence of Saturday. You know, everybody's all over the shop before the Sunday. And I think quite often uh, what I've grown up with is let's get from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday super quick and go la, la, la as we run through the middle of it and pretend it's not there. And I don't think the scriptures have ever encouraged us to walk through life like that. And I don't think it helps others. And um, the two Psalms that really helped me connect with God in those dark moments was Psalm 56, verse 8, which says, you have captured my tears in your bottle and recorded every one of them in your book. And I just remember feeling like, well, every single tear, and there's been many that have flowed down my face. You've captured it. It matters to you. You remember. You, you remember my pain. You remember my story. And then Psalm 34, 8, which says God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I just remember thinking, do you know what? Maybe victory isn't always standing on the top of the mountain going raw, you know. Maybe victory is experiencing the embrace of Jesus when you least expected it. Yeah. And I think for me, that whole process of losing a child and then heading toward adoption really helped me to see that. Yeah. I think even about, you know, that it's funny that as our, our faith has embedded into it, this idea of waiting mm. and of suffering. Yeah. And in our particular corner of the Christian world, you know, <laughs> part maybe it's partly a cultural thing, Nigel, that you spoke about earlier, the culture that we, that we exist in. Mm. But there is also the sense of, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us, which becomes mm. nothing ever challenging or difficult will happen. Yeah. But I think about that even at the birth of Jesus, mm. um, which is the fulfillment of all of Israel's long waiting and the promises that have been given, yeah. even then there's still a wait because yeah. he doesn't come out of the womb and just start acting. There's still a wait until he, you know that promise matures. Yes. And then when he does come to the age of where he starts his ministry, that ministry is marked by suffering. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're right, Kenny, right? It's like 33 years on the planet, three years of really active ministry. Yeah. And in the Advent phase of just, it's meant to be a time that we celebrate waiting mm -hmm. and the power of waiting. Um, but we don't always see that valued sometimes. Maybe, you know, I've been massively enriched in my role at Bible Society in working with mm -hmm. the Orthodox and Catholic traditions who put so much value on reflection and waiting. It's, it really ministered to me quite a lot. But yes, I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, I read a book a while back or was recommended a book. And I, I don't know if you read like this as a student. I hope no lecturers are, are listening to this. Um, but you know, so you skim read a book, sure. you know, sort of like, and you're mining for the gold. Aren't yeah. you? And that's the, the best way of them there. And it was, I think it was something called God is not in a rush. Mm. Uh, and I can't remember who wrote it. I'll have to go and Google it. But I remember just reading little segments of it. And it really resonated with me that my vision of what God wanted for me needed to happen in this time frame and it needed to look like this. But actually, he was doing something different. And I got loads of questions. I have so many questions. I have more questions than answers. 
But I think what I've come to the realization of is God's story and my story are not separated. And that in the middle of the difficulty of it all, he's actually there. He's incarnate. Mm. He's there with me, surrounding me and helping me, even when I can't see him. It's like the book of Ruth, you know, all that tragedy and pain. God's not even mentioned really by name in, in appearing anywhere or anything like that. And yet there is a prevailing of what God wants. And God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, and you see the same kind of thing happening. Yep. God is often his hiddenness, is not his absence. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. And and I think that's what it's 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 brought to my life. So you guys had this deep desire for, a, for to have a child. Yes. Your wife has had this dream, which feels like a promise from God of a blonde boy. (laughs) You go through this incredibly difficult and long period of waiting and suffering. Mm. And yet you also receive, and you're kind of crying out to God, you receive this, um, this word from God about the power of adoption and how that's also part of your identity as his child. Yeah. So... It feels like during that period, which may have not been easy to see at the time, mm. but it feels like maybe your expectations, God was doing something with your expectations in that. Yeah, there definitely is something quite remarkable. I, I, I talk about it as reimagined family. Mm. Like um, it wasn't what I had imagined it to be, but there was a reimagination in that. It wasn't just that I feel like this was God's best for us. You ask my wife and I now, we would not change it for the world. We have this incredible, beautiful little boy who's radically changed our world. I mean, you know, the the sort of thing with adoption is we think we're rescuing the child, but actually the child is bringing something to us that we could never possibly imagine they would bring. And so, uh, yes, the expectation shifted. I think God earthed my face. And, and put deep roots into it and suddenly found that wherever Nikki and I went, we were praying for literally tens of hundreds of people just in the last few, few years, obviously with COVID with an, with an exception, <laughs> but just praying for people who are not just, um, infertile or going through adoption, but just this whole thing about like waiting and, and suffering and but that that is not the absence of god it's sort of like it's god meeting you in that place unexpectedly and working you forward and something quite deep started to form in me about why have we lost the narrative of adoption uh, or i feel like i've not heard it taught a lot when it comes to the gospel mm. for me i grew up and i was asked do you want to give your life to jesus yes say this prayer after me. So I said a prayer and then I was in. So I joined a membership club, you know, and then I was just told, you know, you've got to be a, because Jesus is coming next week. Look busy. You know, it's kind of like that sort of, (laughs) it was, it was, you know, it was, it was this real fear aspect. It was like a really sort of, um, I call it a delusional eschatology, Mm. but you know, I don't want to offend too many people, but, and I can hear my grandfather and, you know, rolling around somewhere in Wales at the moment thinking, I can't believe my grandson's there now. But I, I, from creation right through, I, I suddenly saw that there was this God through creation who extended his table of hospitality to mankind. And actually, 
it was like an invitation to come, right? And and so he creates this temple and he creates his table. It's to be in communion. It's to be in fellowship with. And so when that disconnection of fellowship and relationship happens, you know, there's this complete brokenness. You can feel it in God's heart, this desire for that covenant and that redemption to to bring it back, to buy it back, to make things right. And I just found myself reading the scriptures through this lens of the father and his, his children. Yeah. And I started to think, well, why, why don't we talk about the gospel as adoption? Let me give you an example, if I can, Kenny, like a really yeah. practical one. Let's take adoption, the, the, the sort of way it happens. You search for the child. You rescue the child in some ways is what the terminology is. You take the child. You bring them into your house and they spend time with you, right? And all the pain, all the mess, all the trauma, all the triggers, you know, that child is not going to be put outside the house. It's not going to be kicked out. It spends time and suddenly realizes it's a safe place. Then over time, you start to see little mannerisms coming. They're sort of catching some of you. And, and suddenly there's this transaction between you and the child of, um, you know, of all the quirks you develop from, from your parents. But spending time in our presence, there's that sense of even though we are fallen human beings, we are bringing some grace and some healing and obviously the presence of God in our house. And then one day the judge um, calls us up and he says, right, Dominic is now Dominic Andrew Roy Langford, and he now bears your name. And as a result of him bearing your name, he now has all rights to your whole estate. Are you happy with that? And I remember just getting to the end of that and thinking, what has he done to get any of this stuff? Like, what has he done? It's, yeah. he hasn't done anything. I mean, this is really good news for him. Yeah. Right. He, he, you know, and then I think Jesus, you know, even in all the parables, he sought after the one. He found the one, brought them back. We're brought into God's family. We're brought into his house. We spend time in his presence. We heal up. We realize the beauty of God. And then, and then we commit ourselves and we give ourselves to him and we end up bearing his name. We become heirs. We're raised with Christ and we have done nothing. We have done absolutely nothing to be in that position. And I think in a world that is fearful and lost and broken and isolated, staring at all these crises everywhere, we have a message of extravagant grace that's at the heart of the gospel. And, and I think if, if we stopped trying to work out who's in or who's out for whatever reason, but actually have that posture of what adoption requires, I'll tell you what it required of me, servanthood, humility, listening, suffering together, rejoicing together, receiving a new identity, knowing who we are. It's that kind of thing of like, it's a really, really sacrificial posture, but I believe it's one that's at the heart of the gospel. Mm. Yeah, and in that you enter into um, that experience of the Father's desire for his for his children and what he goes through yeah. to bring them home yeah and i you know just to throw in a little thing here you know I, I i often think we talk a lot about 
the incarnate Christ and, you know, the, the, the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ. But sometimes I think we neglect the ascended Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the time when we're raised. It's like to know who we are in Christ is a remarkable, extravagant interaction. And I just think, wow, that is amazing. And I suppose it's the whole adoption that's really fed my theology and it keeps feeding it now. Mm -hmm. Even the crisis of discipleship, you know, I think real discipleship is that understanding of who we are, our identity, what God has done for us. And therefore our posture to the world shifts and is influenced as a result. And I think that's, that's how the kingdom comes in all its fullness. I'm not saying that adoption is the only image of the, the gospel. There's many, there's many images of the gospel that we can look to, but I feel like we've lost that image of adoption. Yeah. And I, I really feel like I'm called to really make that visible to the people I connect. I was just going to say that whether you've considered that, you know, families like yours and others who have, who have gone on the adoption journey, it's not just like an illustration of the gospel mm. it's an enactment of the gospel yes it, it, it really is because the reason why we talk, we're talking to loads of people at the moment who just don't know jesus we tell them the story of our son and then i just throw in like a massive cannonball at the end and that's why i have a faith mm. because my faith is completely mirrored by that and by the end of it i can't remember the last time somebody went what a load of rubbish literally people are like I didn't know that was what Christianity was about. Yeah. Why hasn't anyone told me? Yeah. You know, yeah. so it is, it's, it's embodied and that's what gives it the authenticity. So maybe part of churches reclaiming adoption as kind of a way of explaining the gospel is not just in um, the way that we articulate the gospel story, but maybe it's maybe part of it as well is actually encouraging walking alongside families who are enacting this gospel truth yes. in their lives. Absolutely. And and even like valuing and naming the values that it takes to see adoption of of children, of teenagers who are who I read Philippians too. Um and I often think, wow, when you know, when Paul's writing about the leadership of Jesus and you think, yeah, that, that kind of posture is what it needs. And, and yeah, however you can help those who are doing it, but also to value and put, put a priority on the sort of kingdom values that it takes to live in a community like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. is, is, is really powerful. Well, we're just going to have to wrap up here. <laughs> um, but just as a kind of a final question to throw out to you. Uh, and really maybe not so much a question for you, but as an encouragement mm. for you to share, what would you say to people who are listening to this and whether it's in the context of, you know, how they're looking to form their families or mm. something else, what would you say to people who are in their own periods of waiting, mm. of suffering, of the unexpected mm. fulfillment? Yeah. Um, well, the advice I'm given is through like a, a myriad of mistakes. So I'd say don't give up. Mm. Don't give up. Hold on. Um, connect with people who are for you, right? I mean, you know, that was difficult for us. There were times we connected with the wrong people and ended up on the end of 
feeling quite battered at times mm. <laughs> because, you know, I think you do have to be discerning about who you give your heart to, especially when your heart's broken. Mm. So hold on, don't give up. Reach out to Jesus. Just don't, don't give up on him. He won't give up on you, but, but find people that you can eat with, cry with, pray with, who, who love you. Things won't make sense. Um, just be at peace with that. You may have more questions and answers until you see Jesus. I kind of think that's part of the deal. Right. And be kind to yourself. Oh gosh. I mean, the amount, because of some of that thinking and theology I grew up with, you know, I spent a couple of years trying to work out what I'd done, what I, what I'd done wrong. And mm. I just don't think that was helpful at all or right or biblical. Yep. So be kind to yourself. And I suppose the two last things I'd say that I did, which are a bit more practical, is I ate chocolate and watched the West Wing. You know, I uh, <laughs> the West Wing's my favorite series of all time. And even though it looks dated now compared to other things, yeah. I still watch it. Yeah. I still love the way Jed Butler puts his jacket on. And I love chocolate. And I literally spent hours um, walking as well to balance up the, you know, the sticky toffee pudding at the beginning. But, you know, you've got to do things that not, not just spirit and emotional, but those sort of really practical things that feed your soul as well. And that's pretty much in a nutshell. Those are the kind of things that Nikki and I did. And to dependent on what week you spoke to us, we felt we were, some weeks okay yeah yeah okay this is we're getting there another week's when we just didn't know where we were but from this angle right now where we are today i just look back and i think those are the things that sustained us and helped us and so and so please if any of those things help you put them in your lives nigel thank you so much for sharing your nikki story and just being willing to talk through how god's spoken to you through it uh, and I think, interestingly, um, you know, sometimes when we have conversations like this, this is not a, uh, a conversation of conclusion. In fact, the story is still being written yeah. and your family is still being formed and yeah. all those things. I think that's the amazing part. Yeah, that's a brilliant point you brought out because what I'm not talking about now is all the tension and difficulty we're going through now Yeah, and all the trauma we're dealing yeah. with and all the pain we're dealing with now. Um, so you're absolutely right. The story continues but have this sense of hope because I've read the book and it all ends well. Yeah. But between now and then, the story continues. Yeah. Blessings, Nigel. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Nigel and Kenny, for that inspiring story, highlighting how adoption is something every Christian is actually familiar with, and how it theologically ties in to periods of hardship and suffering, but also of joy and rejoicing in our Christian walk. In our next episode, Kenny will be joined by Alan Emerson and Roger Ellis who teach the module Shapes of the Church Past, Present and Future on the Church Planting and Leadership Graduate Diploma at WTC. Alan and Roger speak from a wealth of church planting knowledge and experience, and this episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in the subject. 
Thank you for listening to episode 28 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 29 with Alan and Roger as we discuss all things to do with church planting. Bye for now.